0: Real assets play a key role in facilitating the global move towards a lower carbon economy. For example, making homes and offices more sustainable has an important place in the European Green Deal. Real assets that take ESG into account and therefore offer investors a source of long-term returns. My name is Marija Groen. In this podcast we're going to talk about how real assets contribute to a sustainable future. How can investors use these investments to manage ESG risk and capitalize on opportunities? And what role can data play? That's something I'll discuss with Jax Walia, Portfolio Manager, Global Listed Infrastructure and Sustainability Specialist at Kempe. Welcome Jax, great to have you. Hi Mariah. Hi there. Would you mind uh, by starting to introduce yourself briefly to our listeners.
1: Yeah, definitely. So my name's Jags. I work at Kempen for the last two years, but I've been in equities since 1995. And as you can tell from my accent, I'm from London, but I've been here in Holland for the last 20 years. And basically 25 years of investment experience. And the last 10 years have been the most interesting because that's when we started integrating ESG into our stock picking framework. So that's my background.
0: Okay, well, nice meeting you. <laughs> Uh, let's get straight to the point in this podcast why are real assets such as real estate and infrastructure so important in addressing climate change
1: well I think it's mainly because the energy transition which is so needed to address climate change the bulk of it needs to happen within the real asset asset class and um, by that if I give some detail so the real asset asset class that's basically real estate plus infrastructure if you look at infrastructure half of those companies are utilities where 30 percent of global CO2 emissions come from. So if you want to move the needle in addressing climate change, that's where you've got to be. And in terms of real estate, if you look at emissions from buildings, it's about 17%. But if you include construction, you get up to like 38%. So we're upwards of 65% of CO2 is actually from the real asset space. Hence, if you want to participate in the energy transition, this is where it happens. Mm, great. Uh, let's
0: maybe before we talk further about that, uh, clear up the definition issue. Uh, what do you understand by real assets, Jax? Okay, so
1: I'll give the broadest definition that you know we use, and then a couple of examples just to make it more concrete to the listeners. But so the broad, the uh, definition-wise, physical assets that are built for the long term that's what we call real assets. And some of the characteristics of being built for the long term could be long term cash flow visibility, a monopolistic position in a market. But if I give you real examples, so it's, you know, real estate that we know that, you know, buildings, commercial, you know, buildings, residential buildings. And then within the infrastructure space, you would have a whole variety of assets from utilities, wind farms, data centers, toll roads, ports, you know, um in our presentation we give examples of all those. But you know, I can guarantee you've probably used three different pieces of infrastructure today, no matter who you are.
0: Right, right. So it's it's far more than just the buildings we know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So recently, um, my understanding is that you published a white paper on ESG and real assets. What is the added value of ESG and real assets
1: portfolios? So the paper was called Building for the Future. And as investors, we're always concerned with getting better information. So it's not that more information is better, but better quality information helps us analyze. So when we use ESG information... ESG analysis, it actually helps us build a better picture of the true opportunities and costs of a company doing business. So giving us that fuller picture, that's the added value. Right. And, and in your paper, you focus on the E of environment. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Ah, well... We know with ES&G, we've got environmental, social, and governance. And actually, I'll, I'll put in a spoiler alert, this paper's the first part of a trilogy. <laughs> so we will be having another paper later on this year on the social aspect and on the governance, plus one or two other topics that we think need addressing. But the reason we started with the environmental part first is, put simply... Out of the ES&G, the environmental challenge is the biggest challenge that the planet has right now. Even though there is an interaction between environmental issues and social issues, and you can also use governance to reinforce environmental issues, it's the biggest topic to address, so we had to talk about the elephant in the room first.
0: Now, the, the GRESB, the Global ESG Benchmark for Real Assets, has integrated health and well-being indicators into its assessments. Are you doing that as well?
1: Yeah, so what we do is one of our data inputs in our process is the Gresby score, so G-R-E-S-B. So we use their Gresby score as one of the inputs, but what we're not trying to do in our data analysis is capture as much data as possible. We're actually quite... Um, let's say, we're quite strict on which data sources we use and we're quite specific on exactly which data point we're looking for. So with that, you know, we use the Gresby as one of our inputs, but we have several others in our framework as well. Uh,
0: you also state in your white paper that it's too simplistic to include only real assets
1: with the lowest uh, carbon footprint in the portfolio. How so? Um, this is a great question, by the way, because I think in the world of sustainability, if I look at you know the way regulation is moving, the way the financial services sector is moving, I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions out there that a portfolio with a low CO2 footprint naturally and immediately means that you know we're reducing the planet's CO2 footprint as well. That's not always the case. There are some big pitfalls which we addressed in our paper. Um, And I'll address, you know, I'll give you one example from our paper right here. So the main focus when it comes to CO2 footprint is not my CO2 footprint or yours or the portfolio's CO2 footprint. To be honest, you know, I don't care so much about that. The absolutely overriding focus is the planet's CO2 footprint. That's the only thing that counts. And what can happen is in a portfolio, imagine I own company X in our portfolio, that company could be producing a product which has a, you know, a CO two footprint, and hence the more I own of that company, the higher my CO two footprint goes up. And that product could be something like gas. I'll give you a real big example. So, like gas. So the more that company produces of gas, gas is not seen as a, you know, sustainability, you know, a sustainable product. You know, the worse it's going to look for that company or for me if I own that. But The two questions which are missing are, A, what does that product replace? And B, the most important question, what's the impact on the planet's CO2 footprint from this? So what could happen is, and this is a real example, just as we've seen in the US over the past 10 years, the utility sector has been decarbonizing by switching from coal, Towards gas, and gas has half the co2 footprint of coal, so it really helps decarbonize quickly. so I might have a company which you know wants to help China do the same transition in the coming ten years China sixty percent the energy mix is coal I think it 's about eight percent right now is gas you know, one of the components of the Chinese energy transition is to switch out coal and replace that with gas. So if I own a company which is producing more gas going to China, replacing coal, I'm really contributing to the energy transition. But in the portfolio, my CO2 footprint might go up the more that company can contribute. And that's one of the examples that kind of get missed in the kind of common wisdom that we have right now. There's three other examples we put in our paper.
0: Mm. Very clear example, though. I, n- I never knew it, and it and it really helps understanding. Um, let's talk a bit more about the strategy at Kemperjacks. Uh, which key elements are at the heart of your strategic approach to sustainable real assets investment?
1: Okay, so that's a good question, and we don't have a different framework when we consider ESG issues to a traditional investing because within our new active, it's all integrated. So you know, one step cannot be separated from another. They're all essential in you know picking a stock, and those steps are basically analyze, monitor, monetize. So do your homework as best as you can and as completely as you can, and then if you're right, you've created value for your clients and for society, and so the three you know concrete steps are number one it's to analyze and understand the climate risks in a holistic way and by holistic way I'll explain that right now there's an interaction between you know what you're going to start with which is the energy transition risk towards physical asset risk the less well you do on the transition the worst consequences you're going to get in terms of physical asset risk. And then there's also another layer which comes in from inevitable policy response, which you know we see kind of increasing globally and we hope that you know continues because we need support from governments and regulators here as well. And then there's also, you know, the results of those where if you haven't done enough or addressed the right risk properly, you're going to end up with stranded asset risk, which nobody wants to see. So that also needs addressing. And then for us, because we're an asset manager, we also have to consider reputational risk. You know, so we want to contribute to you know, doing good and minimizing the harm that we do in our investments. That's why understanding climate risks, integrating ESG, it's an essential step in stock picking. And the second one, very quickly, it's just our integrated use of data analysis. So we try to combine different data sources to get as much as possible a forward-looking picture. And then thirdly, which is another element of our new active, is and what I really like, is we engage to affect the outcomes. So if you can just you know, roll up your sleeves and start changing the risk reward in your favor, then we do that, we participate, we don't shy away from that challenge. Maybe it helps if you give an example of this, checks on how
0: you identify these risks then for
1: a particular uh, real asset. Okay, so if I give an example, so with our data infrastructure, because we're focusing on real assets. If we know the location of the asset, which we do for the companies we invest in, our systems, with the data that we have and the fundamental investment knowledge that we have, what we try to do is figure out the economic value of that location. Over the long term, and obviously, you know, the longer term out you go, much more material climate risks become. So one of them, like a really simple example, could just be if we're looking at a real estate company with hotels, for example. If I take a look at the location of that hotel, we can overlay that with different climate risk databases. So Munich Re has a great database on which physical asset risk happens at which place. In the US, the FEMA has the same kind of database that you can use. So I take the location of an asset. Then we figure out which specific physical asset risk applies to this asset. And then when you know which risk needs to be addressed, then you know the data stops, and the pm starts so basically then you need to get to know the company to know, okay, of the specific risk that's most material, how much of that has been mitigated? You know, if a company has a hotel which has flood risk, okay, you can't move the hotel, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but you can take measures to protect against flood risk. so then you want to know are those measures adequate enough, what risk is left over, and now that risk that's left over that's where you can engage to say, ah, you know, I've seen this address better elsewhere. Maybe I can add some value partner with the company to say, have you considered options A, B, and C to reduce the risk? That's engaging. And whatever you can't fix via engaging and the risk that's, you know, left over, that's the risk that we then need to price as investors. So that's an example of just combining ESG data plus, you know, your fundamental company knowledge.
0: Right. And and when we talk about ESG, obviously the topic you mentioned already of data is never far away. Uh, What role
1: does it play in the approach at Kempen? Okay, so it's quite central, to be honest. You know, like no investment decision is taken without taking a look at, you know, various data sources, overlaying them. Are you getting a confirmation signal? Are you getting a conflicting signal? Do we need to have a discussion to say, you know, is the data missing something, i.e. you know, you might look at some data on CO2 footprints and it's a year old and it might not be taking into account the impact that future CAPEX will have on future CO2 footprint of that asset location. So that's pretty much how central data is. But it doesn't direct our decision-making, it guides us and we use it, to be honest, as just one more kind of tool to encourage a better discussion. Because if we get better data, we'll ask better questions, we'll get better answers.
0: Right. Another one of your uh, tools that is my understanding is that uh, you've developed a sustainable pathways framework uh, for real asset companies. Could you take me through that uh, framework? Tell me a bit more about it.
1: Yeah, so I'll go through that at quite a high level. If, If you really want full transparency, see, to be honest, we reserve that for our clients, but just, you know, for what I can say on a, you know, very public podcast. So in our framework, Because we're investors integrating ESG, we have two jobs to do. Number one, we've got to create value for our clients. Number two, we've also got to create value for society. But because we're investors, our whole DNA is forward-looking. So we're not really interested in, you know, what the price of a stock was. I'm more interested in what could it be, what will it be going forwards. And that same DNA doesn't change when you integrate an ESG factor. So with that framework we're not so obsessed with how sustainable has this company been historically or what was the CO2 footprint a year ago when it last reported with estimated data which might not have been that complete what we really want to know is how sustainable could this company be going forwards so if i would take the CO2 example our focus is the CO2 trajectory you know how well does this align with paris and A number of questions come up in that framework that we have. So, you know, the first one is, has this company, A, recognized the challenge and set goals? B, how realistic are these goals? And you'll know that if you know the company. And then C, you know, does this strategy really align to this? Is the CapEx aligned to what they said? And then lastly, and I'm taking big steps here, is if I look at the, you know, the goals the company has and the strategy it has. And how realistic that is. I've only addressed the willingness and the ability. What I haven't done is address the commitment. And there we can look at, you know, what's in the governance of this company? Is anyone there actually being incentivized to deliver on this decarbonization plan? And then we can use the G to reinforce the E, but that's part of our engagement work.
0: Okay, sounds like a very clear uh, framework. I can imagine there are also uh, challenges. What the data challenges are specific to real assets?
1: Yep, so... We have a lot of data challenges when it comes to ESG data, normally because you know ESG in terms of investing, it's a relatively new you know change that we've had. So I, you know, for me, it happened ten years ago. So the data reporting from the companies itself is not always complete it's not always timely and most frustratingly it's not always comparable so you're really often getting apples and oranges kind of you know handed to you and you've got to know the difference so that's a tricky thing and that also becomes then a challenge for the ESG data vendors because they're collecting you know poor quality company data in and then if you collect that there's a lot of work you need to do to kind of you know clean up the data to fill the gaps so that's one challenge that we all know about but that doesn't really, for us, to be honest, feel like a challenge. It kind of comes across as more of an opportunity because I already know the weaknesses of the data. So now I know which gaps I need to fill. So, you know, I might see a company has, you know, a low, I don't know, like CO2 score, I'm sorry, a poor CO2 score today. But if I know about the CapEx investments it's going to make, the power plants it's going to close down, the wind investments it's going to make... Then I also know, okay. Today CO two is quite low, but you know, quite poor. But in future, it's going to have a much better CO two score. So that poor data quality for us, it's kind of an opportunity as well. But then there's two other areas where we're you know struggling. Which number one is also social data. So on the E S and G side. The e-data, there's a lot of focus on the social side of data, you know, it's kind of, it's also harder to measure, you know, human rights, you know, those kinds of like major challenges that we have in society today. How are you going to put a number on that? So social data, you know, that's, you know, in its infancy right now. And then lastly, we have SDG data so there's a lot of focus on you know UN SDGs which of the 17 are you focused on uh which one are you, do you contribute to in a positive way or do you detract from in a negative way so sdg reporting the companies are really you know and in their infancy over there so that's something else we're looking out for
0: right right and will probably improve over time i can imagine um You also mentioned before that you use the insights from stewardship and engagement activities for your forward-looking analysis. How do you engage with real asset companies?
1: Okay, so this is, you know, a quite a standardized roadmap that we have and, you know, which we like because it makes it repeatable. If it's easier to do, we'll be able to do more of it, which we are doing. And the starting point is we try to engage with companies with a win-win mentality. So this is not, you know, me standing outside somebody's office with a board shouting slogans and, you know, that kind of stuff. This is really, you know, we understand the company and its business model. So now I need to know And explain, you know, why participating in the energy transition to a greater extent, because it's not that, you know, we have a lot of companies that are denying it. That's not the case at all. They're all, you know, moving. The problem is we need, you know, Al Gore said it best. We have a long way to go and we need to go quickly. So the companies are moving. And sometimes, you know, when we engage, it's because they need encouragement or support just to, you know, move quicker and further so when we engage we start with the win-win mentality and you know it's easy as an investor like vlk because we have the same challenges these companies have you know we also are working on reducing our own carbon footprint so i'm never asking someone to do something that we're not struggling with ourselves and then when we speak to these companies we really want to understand the context in which they operate you know so how many degrees of freedom do they have Are they moving to the max within that? You know, what are the obstacles? What are the incentives to moving faster? And if you can understand that better, you can engage better because you're really speaking to someone understanding the situation that they are in. Clear. Um,
0: Jax, I think we're almost at the end of this interview already, um, and we saved maybe the most compelling question for last. Um, Investors have widely differing beliefs about the connection between ESG and performance. What are your thoughts?
1: Excellent. So I'm lucky enough that I have two jobs to do simultaneously, which is create value for our clients and society. So within that, Based on you know the experience, like what I've seen, it's not a binary kind of question to answer. It's not, if you integrate ESG, yes, that's going to be better. It could be worse as well. It's really a function of how well you integrate ESG, how thoughtfully you've done it, and then how well you've applied yourself. And that's all part of our new active within VLK. Thank you, Jax. Oh, no problem. Thanks, mara
0: I would like to thank today's guest, Jax Walia, Portfolio Manager, Global Listed Infrastructure and Sustainability Specialist at Kempen for his time and his insights. This podcast about contributing to a more sustainable future with real assets is offered to you by Kempe. For more podcasts, please visit fontsnews.nl forward slash podcasts. For more information on ESG and real assets, please visit the website of Kempen, kempen kempen.com. Disclaimer. Kempen Capital Management NV is licensed as a manager of various UCITS and AIFs and authorized to provide investment services, and, as such, is subject to supervision by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. This information should not be considered an offer and provides insufficient information upon which to base an investment decision.